Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today's the 19th of April, 2022, and this will be lecture number 36 in a series on diabetes. And I believe it will be the last one. <clears throat> now, you'll recall last time we discussed the fact that increases in serum free fatty acid has multiple dyslipidemic effects, which results in type 2 diabetes. And you know that the high levels of free fatty acid in the serum are directly linked to an obesogenic state. So once a person becomes obese, uh, free fatty acid increases in the serum, both at the level of bound to serum albumin uh, and circulating in all the different lipoprotein fractions. There's also simply some non-esterified free fatty acid that binds to other serum proteins in its cells. Now, when that fatty acid is delivered to white adipose, when it re-delivered back there because of blood flow, some interesting things happen. In white adipose tissue, you get a decrease in the uptake of non-esterified fatty acid which means it stays in circulation, which means, of course, that fatty acid can then find itself depositing in many other organ systems. <clears throat> Indeed, this causes cardiovascular problems, kidney disease, lung disease, pancreatic disease, uh, as well as corruption completely of all the endo uh, endocrine hormone release, but also the signaling uh, that's associated with the hypothalamus because of leptin insensitivity, which is also linked to this high level of non-esterified free fatty acid in circulation, will give you the overall type 2 diabetic dyslipidemic state, which is also pro-inflammatory. Now, again, going back and, and just isolating out what happens in white adipose, nevertheless, uh, non-esterified fatty acid is not taken up well in that adipose. And the insulin receptor is basically uh, insensitive because of all the circulating free fatty acid, which remember blocks at multiple levels, the normal uh, ligand binding to the insulin receptor. Now, one of the things that of course occurs concomitantly is there's a decrease in the phosphorylation of the insulin response uh, substrate, IRS-1. Normally, IRS-1 would be blocking cyclic AMP, but because it has very low levels, adenylate cyclase, which can be active in white adipose tissue, will nevertheless produce um, cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP, of course, will activate protein kinase A, and protein kinase A will phosphorylate P38 MAP kinase. And P38 MAP kinase, in conjunction with um, a host of transcription factors that we've covered before, will allow for the fresh transcription of two proteins in white adipose. You'll actually get an increase in the transcription of uncoupling protein 1 and also an increase in PGC1-alpha. PGC1-alpha and UCP1 will then allow for 
mitochondria, which are thermogenically competent. Although this normally doesn't become uh, a major access uh, of a physiological response in white adipose tissue because there's insufficient amount of carbon for um, either beta oxidation using the fatty acid because of the lack of uptake or from glucose, which is completely being inhibited from uptake. <clears throat> so, so the white adipose tissue is functioning in a totally um, uh, dyslipidemic way. You're not accumulating fatty acid, not really increasing depot fat in the form of triacylglycerol. And that's one of the other reasons is because the esterification pathway is decreased as well as the lipolysis pathway. So you don't turn over triacylglycerol in the adipose, even upon signaling. Okay. So the beta-2 adrenergic receptor is not functioning in white adipose tissue when there's high levels of non-sterified fatty acid. Yet, you get this increase in adenylate cyclase, cyclic AMP, PKA, and again, the production of those two proteins. So you're making mitochondria, but the mitochondria have very little functional capacity. So what else do I want to say about this? There's a downregulation then of the beta-2 adrenergic receptor. Of course, that's going to impair the stress-associated catecholamine-induced lipolysis, which normally occurs uh, when there is high level of circulating uh, non-sterified fatty acid. So you don't get any new release of uh, free fatty acid, even during fasting in the adipose tissue. So the entire bulk regulation of transferring fatty acid from the adipose to the liver is now being blocked. The only fatty acids that are being introduced to the liver are not via a hormonal regulation, but directly by uptake via that CD36 pathway, and therefore you're making a fatty liver. Right? Again, that's another one of the morbidities in uh, type 2 diabetes. So combination of those problems leads to then that reduced white adipose triacylglycerol turnover. Now, there is a stimulation of the beta-1, not the beta-2, but the beta-1 adrenergic receptor, and indeed the beta-3. And that's what promotes that UCP1 and PCG1-alpha expression. Okay, now again, that's functioning through the adenylate cyclase, which is active in the white adipose tissue. Now, in the brown adipose tissue, with high levels of circulating non-esterified fatty acid, you're still able to take up fatty acid. You're still able to run the insulin receptor and then the insulin response substrate one so that you bring GLUT4 to the surface. So you are bringing glucose, but it's a reduced capacity because, remember, the insulin receptor is inhibited by high levels of free fatty acids. So you're getting some uptake of glucose, but way lower than what normally would occur. So right again, you see there's a dyslipidemic response in the brown adipose, even during high levels of high circulating uh, sterified fatty acid. And that is coming through and making it to the brown adipocyte, primarily because you still have a very potent mitochondrial beta oxidation pathway going. However, thermogenesis from those um, brown adipocytes 
in the obese type 2 diabetic is also not functioning correctly. And it's likely because not a sufficient amount of mitochondria with UCP1 as the uncoupling generating heat in that process. This is another reason why when you go from the animal model to the human, you have to remember that just because you're making, that even if you potentially could make more brown adipocytes in humans because of diet or maybe because of an alteration of gene expression due to inhibitors or activators in those pathways, you're not very likely to increase thermogenesis. And that is considered key to maintaining body weight, therefore minimizing the obesogenic state and minimizing the potential for type 2 diabetes. So right away, you see there's a problem with that logic. That's what I was getting to last time. So <clears throat> you will get some glucose uptake in, in the brown adipose, but it's not enough to induce thermogenesis. That's the point I'm making. The adrenergic stimulation in brown adipose does increase lipolysis. And you do, again, get some UCP1 and PCG1-alpha, uh, which means you are making mitochondria. But this huge increase in intracellular non-esterified fatty acids actually inhibits the adenylate cyclase. And that, that basically is functioning as a negative feedback loop because with high levels of fatty acid, it looks to the brown adipose like there's a dipogenesis going on, right? De novo fatty acid synthesis occurring because all that fatty acid gets esterified to fatty acyl-CoA and you have a lot of it in the cytoplasm. And you're not doing the esterification to triacylglycerol. That pathway is turned down in brown adipocytes. Rather, you're still getting lipolysis. So you're making a lot of fatty acyl-CoA in the cytoplasm. And again, this is going to corrupt that whole pathway for utilizing um, that intake of fatty acid to run the normal beta-adrenergic system. So it doesn't happen uh, very efficiently. And so you don't turn on adenylate cyclase, you don't make cyclic AMP, you don't run that PKA, P38 MAP kinase at the higher level because you can't do the beta-1,3 adrenergic receptor, and you're not really functioning well with the IRS-1 because I told you the insulin receptor is also corrupted because of the high levels of uh, non-certified fatty acid. So with all that together, then, you've got white adipose tissue that is not functioning in its normal capacity to be able to store non-certified fatty acid in the serum. You're not doing an esterification. You're also not doing lipolysis. You're not utilizing fatty acid. And none of the normal signaling that would turn on the hormone-sensitive lipases and the uh, diacyglycerol, monoacyglycerol lipases to generate fatty acid for bulk movement from the adipose, white adipose, that is, back to the liver so that during fasting, you would get a decrease in um, fat mass and you would get the normal lipid homeostasis, you just further increase this dyslipidemia all because of obesity. And even in the brown adipocyte, the same issue occurs, but for the re different reasons. And primarily, the huge buildup of fatty acyl-CoA in the cytoplasm. Okay, So uh, not a good issue at all. Now, I want you to understand something else. When insulin binds to the insulin receptor and it phosphorylates the IRS, normally then there's a phosphorylation of the phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase, which then phosphorylates the AKT. 
And remember that to uh, make the phosphatidylinositol 1,3 kinase uh, uh, function, you have to uh, convert phosphatidylinositol uh, bisphosphate to phosphatidylinositol trisphosphate, because that then will lead to the PI1,3 kinase, PDK1, AKT uh, uh, activation. Now, with all that working correctly, when it does work correctly, AKT then will be responsible for uh, phosphorylation cascade that generates GLUT4 to move from the endosomal compartment to the plasma membrane, okay? Now, this is an interesting aspect of dyslipidemia. Because of high levels of circulating free fatty acid, I told you you make a lot of ceramide. What does ceramide do in this system? Here's a key feature. Okay, now this is in the liver. And you have a lot of anesterified fatty acid entering the liver during the obesogenic state and uh, during the uh, prodromal stages, but also during uh, the fully um, active type 2 diabetic response. So ceramide will do a couple of things. It will block directly because of its role in membrane lipid raft transport. It will block the endosomal transport of GLUT4 to the plasma membrane. So even if insulin is binding to its receptor, once again, you're getting insensitivity to that whole process because you're getting ceramide blocking the mobilization of GLUT4. So you're not getting glucose uptake. That's going to happen in skeletal muscle as well, okay? Obviously, because you got non-ceramide fatty acid in circulation. So you have a lot of ceramide. Now, not only that, not only ceramide blocked directly via that lipid raft mechanism, ceramide also will activate a series of proteins. One of them is the protein phosphatase 2A, and the other is protein kinase C zeta. Both of those, both the phosphatase and the PKC zeta will block AKT further. And remember, AKT is downstream sequelae from normal insulin receptor binding and activation. So that AKT is not turned on. That's another inhibition of the GLUT4 group mobilization to the surface of the uh, cells, to the plasma membrane. So ceramide is doing two things. It's blocking the AKT and it's blocking the GLUT4 bulk transport because of the uh, membrane lipid raft. Now, there's one more protein that probably is activated by ceramide and skeletal muscle in particular. And this is the one called the mixed lineage protein kinase 3, or the MLK3, which I talked about in the past. Now, that, of course, is a protein that's a member of the mitogen activating or MAP kinase kinase group. And it's been implicated in multiple signaling cascades. Which ones are pertinent here? Skeletal muscle, liver, and other peripheral organs? <laughs> the NF-kappa-B pathway. And of course, the NF-kappa-P pathway. And the extracellular signaling regulated kinase, C-June amino terminal kinase. That's the junk kinase, I call it. Plus the P38 MAP kinase pathways are all going to be fired up here. Okay. And what that means is you're going to get a great deal of eicosanoid production, which will lead to a pro-inflammatory state because of the transcriptional 
elevation of the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and extracellular matrix metalloproteases. Okay, so you're going to get then get in terms of which uh, um, cytokines are being produced, the MLK3 th will directly cause a production at the transcriptional level of tumor necrosis factor alpha and also interleukin-6. And we know this is because when there's a deficiency in MLK3, if you can target that protein, there are ways to target uh, pharm pharmacologically, you can then um, selectively reduce. So you get a reduction in MLK3, you get a selective reduction in TNF-alpha. So that means that MLK3 is one of the rheostats controlling the pro-inflammatory response. Okay. So without AKT, several things, without, okay, so if AKT is blocked, normally what AKT would do when insulin binds its receptor, say, in the skeletal muscle, a, if it's not being inhibited by the PP2A or the PKC zeta, it would normally block FOXO1. FOXO1 normally causes the transcription of uh, um, glucokinase, phosphofructokinase, um, but also pepcarboxykinase. Now, that's an interesting thing because two of those enzymes are glycolytic, but is a further increase in the gluconeogenic transcript. And this is believed to be, to be maintaining a, a tight control over glycolysis versus gluconeogenesis all at the level of insulin. Because remember, if it's the liver, the liver has to switch from gluconeogenesis to glycolysis just according to nutritional needs or stress needs or any of the other potential dyslipidemic responses. AKT also would normally have blocked the glycogen synthase kinase 3. So if it blocked that, then uh, well, if you block that, that kinase, what you would do then is allow for the blockage of glycogen synthase. And so that would mean that AKT would effectively control glycogen synthesis when it's not being blocked. But here it's being blocked. So rather than getting glycogen synthesis, that's shut down. Gluconeogenesis is turned up and even more negative for the liver, the skeletal muscle, and the adipose is also uh, responding in a similar way. Um, even, even a more dyslipidemic response occurs now. This is a very, very, very significant thing. What happens is because AKT isn't functioning, you can't turn on mTOR, mTORC1 complex. mTORC1, when it's functioning, normally will block the eukaryotic initiation factor for EBP. So that would block then protein synthesis. And rather, mTOR will cause the uh, transcription and activation of the sterile response element binding protein 1C. So because AKT is no longer controlling this because there's no AKT, mTOR is then capable 
of shutting down protein synthesis, but at the same time turning on fatty acid synthesis. So you get an increase in fatty acid synthesis, you get an increase in gluconeogenesis in the liver, because the liver is the major uh, organ for gluconeogenesis, but you get a shutdown of glycogen synthesis and a shutdown of protein synthesis. Obviously, that means that the liver is going to be generating glucose, even when there's excessive amounts of glucose, because insulin is high, right? This is, again, a type 2 diabetic state. So you're getting gluconeogenesis in the liver, but you're also getting fatty acid synthesis in the liver, even though there's high circulation of non-esterified free fatty acid. So the liver is producing more fatty acid. The lipoprotein complexes are all building up with triacylglycerol, phospholipid, sphingolipid, and yeah, even some free fatty acid. So the lipoprotein starting from the VLDL to the IDL to the LDL are all out in circulation. All those apolipoproteins, what are scavenged back, are capable of mobilizing that lipid out, but increasingly the lipid stays in the liver. And this is how you get the fatty liver, right? You get a lot of fatty acid synthesis, but you don't get a lot of mobilization because protein synthesis gets tanked. And so you can't keep up with the production at the transcriptional level um, of the apolipoproteins, which are all necessary for the assembly of the VLDL, okay? And the IDL and the LDL uh, as, as the lipoprotein matures in circulation, okay? So ceramide is responsible for all of this corruption. That's my point. Ceramide then causes the liver to co become completely dysfunctional during the diabetic state. You have insulin binding, but the insulin response doesn't function correctly in skeletal muscle or adipose. We've just gone through that. So you'll get good glute 4 mobilization. And in the, and in the liver, um, the way that insulin functions primarily is, again, controlling the, glyco the glycogen stores, lipid stores, and, of course, the switch between glycolysis and gluconeogenesis, depending, again, on nutritional needs. And all of that becomes corrupted. The liver becomes gluconeogenic and non-glycogen synthetic. So you can see where this can lead to tremendous problems. Uh, increasing glucose levels in serum, increasing fatty acid accumulation in the liver, and even some spillover of uh, lipid uh, re-entering the bloodstream. And all that lipoprotein, not meeting up lipoprotein lipase in the white adipose tissue, uh, leading to higher and higher levels of lipid in circulation. And where that lipid goes is not in these systems, but in those other organs that don't normally take up a lot of triacylglycerol from the uh, lipoprotein fraction. And this includes the kidney, the lung tissue, and of course, the cardiovascular system. Not only that, HDL builds up and you get a higher level of apolipoprotein E4 able to translocate lipids across the blood-brain barrier. So HDL no longer is um, uh, doing the retro trafficking of cholesterol back to the liver. It's increasingly not functioning at the liver and HDL then ends up being a source of ApoE4, and ApoE4 is one of the risk factors for, yep, Alzheimer's disease, okay? And some forms of prefrontal dementia. So you get the idea now, some of these uh, common comorbidities in obesity and type 2 diabetes, you normally just think about inflammation, 
You think about, you know, a chronic dyslipidemia, which is causing a dysregulation of all the metabolic pathways, an increase in body weight, increase in circulating glucose, insulin resistance, all that. Now I'm telling you also the involvement. I already explained to you about the involvement of the kidney. I spent some time on the lung, but now I'm talking about the central nervous system, a complete dysregulation, leptin resistance, and also on top of everything else, an inflammatory response working through the microglia because of that E4 entrance with fatty acid. Okay. So definitely a very uh, unhealthy, very comorbid state with multiple factors going against the obese uh, person. Now, there was a paper that was uh, published in Journal of Diabetic Research, or Diabetes Research, excuse me, that tried to examine, once again, does ceramide and or diacylglycerol have a role in insulin resistance? Now, this particular paper was interesting to me because it was a clinical study, and they were looking at the very early stages, in fact, not even, but pre-diabetic. So they were evaluating insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity after endurance training intervention. And they were looking at certain lipids, those two lipids, ceramide and diacylglycerol, in the skeletal muscle of 19 first-degree type 2 diabetic offspring and 16 match controls. So these were diabetic offspring. So they were trying to determine whether or not there was a genetic predisposition here. Okay? And of course, that's always a problem because if you've got people that are diabetic and children living at home, it could be that there's a lot of um, behavioral modifications in terms of food consumption in that household that may have very little to do with genetic predisposition, but more with epigenetic alterations due to diet and increasing in food intake, and therefore the younger children actually also becoming obese in that household. Okay. So anyways, this is one of the things that we're looking at. It's a 2016 paper. And so they did 10 weeks of endurance training. And they measured, you know, VO2 max and it was and they were using a bicycle. So before and after the intervention, a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp was added, uh, was, was put on the system, okay? And then what they did was the VO2 max test, and then they did muscle biopsies, punch biopsies, okay? And what they found was the following. Insulin sensitivity was lower in offspring compared to control, but not statistically so. And another important finding both the healthy and the offspring of the obese diabetic, both of them improved after 10 weeks of endurance training in terms of VO2 max tests. It's the only real uh, ergometric measurement they were doing. Okay. Now, here's the, here's the key feature. The content of muscle ceramide and diacylglycerol and they looked at multiple species. They, they did uh, GC mass spec. Were actually not dissimilar between the groups. So they were similar. You didn't see any real, real differences, except for one particular ceramide, which looked like it might have had an increase in both 
the diabetic offspring and in the healthy people. And that was a C22 ceramide, C22 colon O, no double bonds. So that, of course, is going to be synthesized de novo, right? Because it's not part of the essential fatty acid pathway. So basically, they found that there was no alteration of AKT, mTOR metabolism here. And there was no real difference in insulin sensitivity. And there was no real difference between ceramide or diacylglycerol. Okay. So a lot of the things you might think, because of the animal studies I've been telling you about, did not play out. Now, again, there's a lot of problems with that study. You're looking at offspring. They were not diabetic. And uh, so it's difficult to uh, discern whether or not if you had real pro-dromal uh, diabetic, whether or not you would see a ceramide diacylglycerol. Diacylglycerol works through the protein kinases, ceramide working through the phosphatase, protein phosphatases, as well as that lipid membrane raft uh, scenario I told you about. All right, I'm going to stop here. Um, I've given you, I think, enough primary literature to um, whet your appetite to understand the current state of diabetic research in the primary scientific research literature. So hopefully those 36 um, lectures, which amounts to, what, 18 hours of lecture, were useful. I'm going to stop here. I'm going to start a new topic next time you hear me. I am going to do eventually some crowning um, video lecture on diabetes, but I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to move into a new topic. It's a new topic I really have to work on uh, because I'm actually using this new topic to write a review article. <laughs> so it's sort of selfish on my part too, but you'll like the new topic. It's really interesting. It's pure biochemistry. Okay. Dr. Dan Guerra on the 19th of April, 2022, saying bye for now and bye to diabetes for now.